Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're having a great day. You know, our hope here at Open Your Eyes is that we can all open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And each week, we try to bring messages to this podcast that will help you in real and practical ways to live a happier life. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. Now, if this podcast inspires you a bit, please share it with a friend. You know, it's easy nowadays to shoot a text with a link and say, hey, I loved listening to this, thought you would too. When we share a quick message and a podcast with people, we're saying, I cared enough to think about you. So help us get the word to more people and help them know you're thinking of them. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how to lean in to life. If you travel to the southwest section of Brooklyn, New York, you'll run into the Coney Island Peninsula. And for decades, Coney Island was the largest amusement area in the United States and attracted several million visitors a year. Today, Coney Island has two amusement parks, Luna Park and Dino's Wonder Wheel Amusement Park. And this collection of beaches, amusement parks, public parks, and other attractions makes Coney Island, an American landmark. In 1916, a nickel hot dog stand opened up on Coney Island, and it was co-founded by Nathan Handwerker. He started the business with his wife, Ida. Nathan was a Jewish-Polish immigrant who arrived in New York in 1912, and Nathan and Ida spent their savings, totaling $300, to start the hot dog stand. And Nathan had been working at a Coney Island restaurant that sold hot dogs for 10 cents. So he got the idea to start making his own dogs and selling them at five cents, half price. And to convince the public of the quality of the dogs, Nathan hired men in white coats to show up each day and eat the hot dogs. And people assumed the men were doctors from the nearby hospital and trusted that the dogs were good. Now, here's how hot dogs are made, if you don't know. First, you start with trimmings. And trimmings are exactly that. Trimmings are left over after cutting steaks and pork chops and other meat. And the trimmings are ground just like hamburger is ground. Then processed chicken trimmings are added to the mix. Then food starch and salt and other flavorings are also added. Then the flavorings vary. Nathan's hot dogs use a bit of garlic to make them distinct. Then everything is mixed into a large vat with water and corn syrup. A machine then mixes everything into this fine emulsion that takes out any air, and long rolls of cellulose tubing are then loaded into a machine which shoots the meat and trimmings mixture into the tubing. The tubes are then passed through a smoke shower and cooked in large ovens, and the liquid smoke soaks through the casings and adds a smoky flavor to the hot dogs. The dogs are then cooled and packaged. Now, all of that sounds real appetizing, doesn't it? Well, after all that, if you're thinking, you know, I'm kind of hungry for a hot dog. Next time I go to Coney Island or one of the 200 Nathan hot dog stands in North America, I could eat a hot dog. Could you eat two? Let's say three hot dogs in a sitting. Could you do that? What about four or five? Could you eat five hot dogs? 
But five dogs is nothing compared to what happened just a few weeks ago at Coney Island at the famous annual Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest held every year on the 4th of July. The contest started in the early 70s, and the contest is really simple. The contestants are given 10 minutes to eat as many hot dogs as they can. Now, the contest is certified and sanctioned by the International Federation of Competitive Eating, and 20 contestants are invited to compete each year. And they include the defending champion, winners of regional qualifying contests, and two wildcard entries. Now, the contestants stand on a platform behind a long table, and in front of them are drinks and dozens of plain hot dogs in buns. And usually, the dogs have long since cooled after grilling, and the spectators watch and cheer and grimace and gag as they watch the contestants inhale the dogs and buns. And if the eaters are too messy during the competition and they leave remnants on the table instead of getting everything in their mouth, they're issued yellow cards, and this can lead to disqualification. Well, in 1979, the first 10-minute contest was held at Coney Island, and Luther Frazier, a 17-year-old boy from Brooklyn, won by eating 10 dogs after a playoff with a 35-year-old bond dealer from Queens. And over the years, Japanese eaters have often dominated the eating contest, with Hirofumi Nakajima winning the contests for several of the years during the 1990s. He was followed by Takeru Kobayashi, who won six years in a row, eating as many as 66 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Kobayashi dipped the hot dog buns in water, making them easier to go down. Now, scientists have shown that these eaters are usually not overweight people, but they've learned to suppress their gag reflexes and they can control their esophagus muscles. And they've slowly stretched out their stomachs over time until their stomachs are very much like a big, open, soggy bag. And the experts say the top half of the stomach of these professional eaters expands and fills up like a storage tank, and the lower half of the stomach grinds up the food into a smooth paste called chyme. And if the chyme flows too fast into the small bowel, most people experience dumping syndrome, causing cramping and diarrhea and abdominal pain. And with the vast quantities of food and speed at which these eaters eat, it seems logical that some speed eaters would experience dumping. But you know, they usually don't. Their bodies are used to it. Now this year, Joey Chestnut won. And he ate 63 hot dogs, which was 20 hot dogs more than the closest competitor. But this year's performance by Joey was down from last year when he won with a record 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. The women's winner this year was Miki Soto, who ate 40 hot dogs. Now, her record is 48. Now, for perspective, 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes means, of course, that you eat 7.6 dogs in a minute. That means you must eat an entire dog every 7.8 seconds. You should try that at home. Try to eat a hot dog in 7.8 seconds. It's almost impossible. Now, while Nathan's is the most famous extreme eating contest, San Jose has a taco eating contest in which the champion has eaten 101 tacos in eight minutes. New Orleans has an oyster eating contest, and Sonia Thomas has eaten 46 oysters in 10 minutes. And Amarillo, Texas has a contest in which Molly Schuler ate three 72-ounce steak meals 
in 20 minutes. To do that, the 120-pound mother ate 13.5 pounds of beef, three baked potatoes, three shrimp cocktails, three salads, and three buttered rolls in 20 minutes. Now, Molly has continued to lean into her craft, setting records on a number of eating fronts. In February of 2018, she won the Wing Bowl in Philadelphia, where she ate 501 wings. Now, when I want a real laugh, I watch Molly on YouTube. In one video, she eats 216 sliders. In another, 100 pieces of Popeye's chicken. Another, 112 taquitos in five minutes. Now, it's not likely that you and I are going to become professional speed eaters, but you have to admire a few things about these people. They are seriously committed to what they do. They lean into it with all their appetite, so to speak. They train, practice, and work so that they can be excellent at what they do. And you and I may not choose their path or profession, but you have to admire what they do and how well they do it. Top competitive eaters earn about $500,000 a year. Here's the point. Whatever you choose, whatever it is you decide to do in life or during this period of time in life, lean into it. Like Joey Chestnut or Molly Schuler, lean into it. Even if it's trivial or small or even different, lean into it. For example, some of you have recently started a business. Lean into it. There's something amazing that happens when you feel inclined to give yourself to something. Now, the definition of lean is to cast one's weight in a direction or to be inclined in opinion or effort. Be inclined, lean, list, sway, and angle to be the best you can at your current chosen endeavor. Why? Because it fills you with feelings of strength and yields serendipitous results. Let's say you've decided to give an online business a try. When you only dip your toe in the water, when you only give it a balanced effort, when you never lean fully into it, you're not likely to do as well. And that robs you of feelings of self-worth and doing well and the rewards of achievement and identifying with your effort. But if you lean into it and become inclined and get curious and try harder and give effort, and this helps you realize that you have more talent than you think, and you begin to learn and grow, then leaning into a thing helps you become a different, a better person. Now, what does leaning in look like? Well, it's an organized and relentless pursuit of what you decide to do or be. It's wholehearted, prioritized, top of mind. It's somewhat consuming. For certain, leaning in means that you deal with setbacks, that you are inclined, that your daily momentum leans in the direction of what you're trying to do or who you want to be. So if you decide to be a competitive eater, you think like one, you practice like one, you eat like one, and the like. If you decide to be a force for positivity in your family, you talk like one, practice like one, and so forth. If you've decided to build a business to last a lifetime, you think like, work like, and commit like, you're in it to win. Now, when I think of leaning into a thing, I think of several signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, you may think that the signing of the Declaration was somewhat akin to your state representatives voting for a bill. Not even close. Those who put their name on that document of freedom 
did so knowing full well if they failed in their assertions and cause, they would likely be tried and killed by King George. Like you and me, the signers of the document weren't perfect people. They were imperfect people leaning into a cause and leaning into it with their very lives. You know, one month prior to the signing of the Declaration, Richard Henry Lee put to the Continental Congress a resolution that would change history. And that resolution said that these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, and the connection with Great Britain be dissolved. Now, it would take weeks of persuasion and debate and consideration before all 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence would lean into that cause, because that resolution and the acts that followed were treason and punishable by death. Now, one of the most famous signers of the Declaration is John Hancock. Why? Because his signature is so large and even flamboyant when you see it on the document itself. And some have attributed this to Hancock's lack of humility or a flaw on the part of his character. But I don't think so. Legend has it that he signed his name so large so fat old King George could read it without his spectacles. So if Hancock was going to sign his name, he was going to lean into it and make certain that whoever read this document would know that he was fully committed to the cause. Because of his position over the Second Congress, he was the first person to sign. And I've also thought that he was also setting the tone for those that would sign after him. Maybe he thought that some of them were not leaning into the cause like they might otherwise do. Now, many people believe that all the signers affixed their name to the document on July 4th. Not so. Only John Hancock signed on the 4th. Most of the other 55 men signed the document on August 2nd, and few even later than that. And my point is this. John Hancock leaned into the cause, set the example, and others followed. You know, it works that way. When you lean into a cause, it's attractive. People follow. I mean, think about it. Do you want to follow a half-hearted person? No. You know, it's Joey Chestnut who makes you want to try and eat 66 hot dogs. It's the spirit of John Hancock that makes you want to sign or make a declaration. And the same goes with you. If you're leading a team, lean into it. If you're leading a family, lean into it. If you're leading your life in a new direction, lean into it. Now, one more thing about John Hancock. He had a lot to lose. When John was 26, his uncle passed away and left him a rather large fortune. And most wealthy people were about protecting their status and riches and staying loyal to Britain. But Hancock donated lots of money to help Bostonians in need. And perhaps it was that he had so much to lose that gave him so much influence with those around him. You know, when you lean into your business or whatever else you're pursuing, it means you risk losing something. Because if you spend your time and heartache and effort on something, and it doesn't yield what you're seeking, you've wasted time and that could have been spent elsewhere, right? But here's the thing. That's what life is all about. Trying, attempting, and yes, when you lean in, even losing from time to time. Now, if you're a Harley Davidson fan, you know that Harley specializes in heavy bikes. A typical Harley weighs about 900 pounds, 
That's more than half the weight of a 1970 Volkswagen. And because Harleys are so heavy, they're difficult to turn and stop. And that's why so many people like to ride Harleys on the open road. But as a street bike, Harley-Davidson would not be your first choice. And as a result of a Harley's weight and lack of manageability, you hear a lot about crashes on Harley-Davidson bikes. For example, some of the famous ones include Billy Idol, who was riding his Harley in Hollywood when he ran a stop sign and crashed into a car. Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers, during a break between recording and touring, was riding his Harley in Macon, Georgia, when a flatbed truck hauling concrete stopped in the middle of the road. He swerved to avoid the truck, but because his Harley was heavy, he hit the truck and was thrown from his bike, and the bike landed on top of him, and he died from his injuries. And just one year later, Dwayne's bandmate, Barry Oakley, Barry played the bass guitar in the band, rode his bike into a bus just three blocks away from where Allman crashed, and he also died and was buried next to Allman. So, unless you know how to ride a Harley-Davidson well, they can be a bit dangerous. And there are a few skills that help you in navigating the road with one of these heavy bikes. The first is your motorcycle goes where your eyes are looking. So, if you want to successfully negotiate a curve, you have to look where you want to go. The second is that when you approach curves on a heavy bike, Unless you anticipate the curve, you can find yourself drifting and crossing the line separating you from opposing traffic. So you look ahead, stay wide, and lean into the curve. Leaning into the curve on a heavy bike can be scary because you're tipping to one side, but leaning in allows you to navigate the curve and stay in control of your bike. And experienced riders will tell you when approaching a curve, lean in, Pick your line and throttle out. Throttling out means you don't break your way through a curve. You slow before the curve, pick your line, lean in, and throttle out. Likewise, we're all dealt curves on the road of life or even business. And some of us, when facing a curve, a challenge, an illness, a change in circumstance, want to break our way through the experience with stops and starts. And I've seen the anxiety and worries we have when facing a curve rob us of the opportunity to use these curves to change and grow and improve. Curves cause us to make assumptions, to be afraid, to slow down and worry. Let's say you're building a business and just lost one of your team leaders. You can make assumptions that you did something wrong and worry and slow down and or freeze. Or you can lean into it and get better at finding a new team member. You can be afraid it may happen again or become better instead. Let's say in life you lost a friendship or made a mistake, misjudged a situation, or any other type of curve in life. Lean into it. Become a better friend as a result. Right the wrong. And don't let your fear stand in your way. You know, sometimes life or mistakes or circumstances knock us on our tail. Well, get up. As Steve Maraboli says, Happiness is not the absence of problems, it's the ability to deal with them. Or in other words, when it's cloudy, sometimes you just have to create your own sunshine. Leaning into whatever you're attempting in life will require you generate a bit of sunshine, that you become a force for good. In my current role, I lead a team of employees and volunteers 
attempting to do something worthwhile in our community. On my way to work, sometimes I reflect on what is the most important thing for me to do that day. Not always, but often, the answer that comes back to me is to generate positivity around the work and the job to be done. Now, I have a few employees that make up a team that desperately needs to improve. If this team of four people can do their job well, it will result in more visitors and revenue and positive effect to our organization. And I've been frustrated of late with their lack of performance, so much so that I thought it might be time to replace a few of them with someone who's better prepared. So last week, I scheduled a meeting to meet with this team. And my first thought was that I needed to be direct to let them know where they were letting us down and push them to a higher level of action. But as I listened to them report on their work, I changed tactics. I leaned into their work and direction. And I told each person what I liked most about them, what I loved about their work, and reinforced the faith that we had in them. As I spoke, two of the people in the room teared up. And what's happened to their work since? Well, it's improved. And it was a reminder to me that when you lean into people, when you're inclined towards their potential, they often rise and they often improve. And I was reminded how much other people need us to lean in to them and have faith in them. We need to be inclined to their potential, to see their good and let them know that our favor tilts in their direction. I find this is true in parenting. When you have a challenging child, lean in. Lean in with faith. Lean in with accountability. Lean in with love. When you make a mistake, lean in. Give yourself a break and lean in to improving. When you find something you love, lean in. And recognize that in the game of life, you will strike out a few times at the plate. You know, baseball is a fascinating game that I loved to play as a young man. Standing in the batter's box and outmaneuvering a skilled pitcher is a mental and physical puzzle. Let's take, for example, the curveball. When a pitcher throws a curveball, he places a spin on the ball as it leaves his hand, and the spin causes air on one side of the ball to move faster than the other. And this results in uneven pressure on the ball, making it move in a specific direction. Now, Good pitchers in the pros will vary spins so that some curveballs break a lot and other curveballs break only a little. So you can't anticipate the distance of every curveball. So how do you coach hitters to hit the curve? First, the best major league batters rarely hit a well-located curveball for a base hit. Here's what good hitters learn. Those who are successful in hitting the curveball don't always swing at the best curveballs. They let those pitches go by, even if they're going to be called a strike. A good hitter understands that hitting a well-located curveball, in most cases, ends up as a ground out. So, what's the secret? How do you hit a curveball? You let the good ones go and swing at the bad ones. As batters get better, they learn to see the spin of the ball as well as where the ball is thrown, and this allows them to improve their skills at hitting the curve. Likewise in life, some curveballs you just let go. Leaning into your time at the batter's box in life means that sometimes you just have to let the pitch go by. Accept you lost this one. Take the mistake. Admit your wrongdoing. Take the strike. And in the long run, 
If you take the strike and keep your head about you, you stand a better chance of hitting the next pitch. So you didn't get the job you wanted, or someone else got the recognition you deserved. So you got COVID and it set you back a bit, or your son or daughter is facing a disappointment. Let the pitch go. Yes, life isn't fair. But in the game of life, there will be strikes and curves, and you're not going to get a base hit every single time at bat. You know, batting average in baseball is determined by dividing a player's hits by his total at-bats. And a great percentage in baseball is 300. That means 30% of the time when a batter goes to bat, he'll get a hit. 30%. And players that hit 300 get paid the most, and they feel great about their performance. And you know what? We ought to feel the same. You don't win every time. And life isn't fair. So let the pitch go and be ready for the next one. You know, over the years, a lot of quotes have been attributed to the great Babe Ruth. He said, every strike brings me closer to the next home run. That means statistically, I'll have a certain number of strikeouts and a certain number of home runs over the course of a year or my career. So each time I strike out, I'm closer statistically to the next home run. So I should lean into, be grateful for, and be encouraged by the strikeout. Now, some of you listening to this podcast have recently started a business, and you, like me, must do a lot of recruiting and pitching to potential customers who could join your team or buy your products. And if you're in business, this is what you do. But some people who haven't been in business long let the no's that people tell them take them out of the game. But those who have been around understand that statistically, there are a certain number of people who will tell you no and a certain number who will tell you yes. So getting a no means that you're much closer to a yes. I used to tell people, if you knew that the yes that you're looking for is 20 no's away, how much more eager would you be to get those no's from people? As the great babe said, don't let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game, because you just can't beat a person who never gives up. You know, hundreds of books have been written about mountain climbers and football players and explorers. Not many books, however, are written about professional bass fishermen. However, one bass fishing book is worth reading, and that book is about Clay Dyer. Now, in case you haven't seen a bass fishing competition, they are intense. It's an event where fishermen compete, they fish, against other fishermen for an allotted period of time. And tournaments typically start at first light during a day and last for six to 10 hours. And you win the competition by bringing in the heaviest amount of total fish. So catching a large bass helps you because it weighs more. Well, Clay Dyer competes in these bass tournaments. Clay was born on May 23rd, 1978, without legs below his hips, no left arm, and only a small partial right arm. As a boy, Clay started fishing about age four or five, and he fished in his first tournament at age 13. Now you could ask, how can he fish with only one partial arm and no hands? Well, Clay uses his chin to hold the fishing rod against his neck and turns the reel with his partial arm. Dyer ties the lures to his fishing line with his mouth and tongue, and he retrieves the lure from the mouth of the fish in the same way. And he's fished more than 200 bass tournaments and placed first in about 20 state tournaments. 
You know, early on, he attracted the attention of several high-level sponsors. But after six years of competition, he was disqualified because of a rule requiring that all participants be able to render aid to others in the case of a boating accident. But Clay was undeterred, and he worked tirelessly with the needed organizations to allow him to fish. Clay says, when I was about four and a half years old or so, I said, Daddy, why did God make me like this? My dad looked at me and said, Son, I don't know, but I know God doesn't make mistakes. And when I look back on it, I realize that I didn't see it at the time, but God knew when he made me, he made me for a purpose to be able to go out and witness and encourage people to live for him. Now, Clay, while not made for fishing, leans in to fishing, to his chosen profession. And you know, the same can go for you and me. You and I may not be the most talented or even the most capable, but we can lean in. And I believe that God blesses those who lean in, who declare through their demonstrated intent that what they're doing means something to them. And I also believe that life blesses them because of that, because life, people, God now see what they are inclined to do. You know, the person who never leans in never really tells the world what they value. So the world gives very little attention to them. So if you're a grandmother, lean in and be the best you can be. If you're a student, lean into your studies and classes and get the most from your experience that you can. If you're a team member, lean in and help those around you. Lean into life. You are on this earth to become more than you think. And leaning in will help you find how far you can go. In the Bible, the word lean only appears five times. And one of those five is a favorite of mine, as it describes one person in particular. The scripture says, talking about this person, that he leaned on the Lord. Imagine the person that does that in life, that leans, relies, depends, and keeps his or her focus on what matters most. I suspect in the end, his or her leaning will have made all the difference. And you know what? The same goes for you. Whatever you lean into will make the difference. So as we end today, remember, like competitive eaters, it doesn't matter what you've chosen to do or what you've decided to be remarkable at doing. Lean into it with all your heart, focus, and effort. Wholehearted people get what they're seeking. Like John Hancock, Sign your name big so the world knows what you believe and what course you're on. And lean into people who need your faith and trust in them. When life throws you a curve, find your line. Lean into what comes your way and throttle up. Power your way through. Accept where you are. Take a strike or two. And in the end, you will win the game. And like Clay Dyer, your chosen endeavor may not seem like the most logical for you, and you may not be even the most well-suited. It doesn't matter. Lean in. Give what you have. At least you'll learn and grow, and at most you'll succeed beyond your expectations. And I believe God and life blesses those who give their most to what they feel they should be doing. And watch. You will stand at the plate of life and hit the ball further and better than you thought possible. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast 
as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.